Okay, so since it is Reformation Month, and since my beloved will be oh so very proud of me, <laughs> um, last, I think it was last semester, last year, one of those, it all blends, um, I started going through and reading some of the letters of John Newton, and I thought, what an appropriate way for us to begin this morning but by looking again at one of his letters, two, he wrote different people, either different people in his own congregation or different people from afar who would write him and ask him for advice and for different things. Um, oftentimes, these were two different women, um, this one, but he never puts their names, so that has not been preserved for antiquity. So um, in his memoirs, it's just, Dear Mrs. M., and that is who she is, or there's a Mrs. K, different ones. So this one's uh, written quite a while ago, but I just love John Newton because he's acquirable. Like my teeny tiny little brain can read him, and I don't have to read him 14 times to get what he's trying to say to me so, or what he's trying to say to these other dear ladies. So, um, And just the way he puts things is so humble, so sweet, and just as we think about thinking, um, I just thought this would just be the appropriate way to begin our morning together. So his letter starts, Dear Madam, the best advice I can send or the best wish I can form for you is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of those words of the apostle, looking unto Jesus. The duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer are all comprised in that one sentence. Let us first pray that the eyes of our understanding may be opened and strengthened, and then let us fix our whole gaze upon him. But... How are we to behold him? I answer, in the looking glass of his written word. There he is represented to us in a variety of views. The wicked world can see no loveliness in the portrait he has given of himself. Yet, blessed be God, there are those who can behold his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And while they behold it, they find themselves changed into his image by the transforming influence of his spirit. In vain we use reasonings and arguments and resolutions to beat down our corruptions and to silence our fears. A believing view of Jesus is the only effectual means. When heavy trials in life are appointed us and we are called to give up or perhaps to plug out a right eye, it is an easy matter for another to say, be comforted. But this is totally useless. Only a believing view of Jesus will sustain us. When we can fix our thoughts upon him as submitting for our sakes to drink 
our whole bitter cup of the wrath of God to the very dregs. And when we further consider that he who thus suffered in our nature, who knows and sympathizes with all our weaknesses, is now the supreme disposer of that which concerns us, and that he numbers the very hairs of our heads, appoints every trial we meet it with in number, weight, and measure, and will allow nothing to befall us but what shall contribute to our real good, this view, I say, is a medicine suited to every disease and powerfully reconciles us to every affliction. So, when a sense, a sense of sin prevails and the tempter is permitted to assault us with dark and dreadful suggestions, it is easy for us to say, do not be afraid. But those who have tried well know that looking to Jesus is the only and sure remedy in this case. If we can get a sight of him by faith as he once hung between the two thieves and as he now pleads within the veil, then we can defy sin and Satan and give our challenge in the apostles' words, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, yes, rather, who is risen again, who also makes intercession for us. Again, we are afraid of being swallowed up by our many restless enemies or are weary of our long pilgrimage through such a thorny, tedious, barren wilderness. A sight of Jesus as Stephen saw him crowned with glory, yet noticing all the sufferings of his poor servants and just ready to receive them to himself and make them partakers of his everlasting joy. This will raise the spirits and restore strength. This will animate us to hold on and to hold out. This will do it, and nothing but this can. So, if obedience is the thing in question, looking unto Jesus is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude, and those who greatly love and are greatly obliged find obedience easy. When Jesus is upon our thoughts, either in his humbled or his exalted state, either as bleeding on the cross or as worshipped in our nature by all the host of heaven, then we can ask the apostles' question with a befitting disdain. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! What? Shall I sin against my Lord, my love, my friend who once died for my sins and now lives and reigns on my behalf, who supports and leads and guides and feeds me every day? God forbid, no. Rather, I would wish for a thousand hands and eyes and feet and tongues for 10,000 lives that I might devote them all to his service. He should have all then, and surely he shall have all now. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
alas, that in spite of myself, there still remains something that resists his will. But I long and pray for its destruction. And I see a day coming when my wish shall be accomplished and I shall be holy and forever the Lord's. I am your affectionate servant, John Newton. So with that, let's go ahead and open. I almost made it. <laughs> go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I just love his letters. I love his pastor's heart. You hear in them. And the care, the tender care for his Lord that bleeds out through to the people he's writing. So in that thought pattern, let's read what Paul wrote in Colossians. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Thank you. So number one on your outlines, we first are going to peer into the mysteries and the wonderfulness of our past with Christ. We have been raised up, Paul says. So our past with Christ, we have been raised up. Look down at verse number one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now, that if there, he's not saying if, meaning, you know, some sort of um, hesitancy or confusion on, have you, haven't you? More he is building on what he has laid out in chapters 1 and 2. And that if really needs to be translated since. Since you have been raised up with Christ. And then he's going to move forward with, if this is true, then this. So that's helpful as we move forward together. Have it been raised up. That means to raise up together from moral death to a new and blessed life devoted to God. So Paul has been laying down foundational doctrine in the beginning chapters of Colossians. So the church in Colossae were fighting the influence of Judaizers on one side, saying you have to do these certain things. You have to follow the law, do the, observe these different holidays and, and man's traditions in addition to Christ. And then, yes, you're saved. But not only did they have that on one side, they had that pagan Gnosticism in Colossae. It was just beginning to come out. And that pagan Gnosticism would say, oh, 
Well, if you are an elite Christian and intelligent, you can rise up and have these heavenly visions and dwell in these heavenly atmospheres and then it's a higher platform of spirituality that you can reach if you follow our teaching. They also taught that you could commune with the angels and that the angels were the communication liaison between man and God. So very mystical, very um, emotional driven, very much. But they also went after the intellect. But, you know, you were only truly intellectual if you could reach this higher plane. So Colossae is just a baby church starting to walk together in this newness of life. So Paul is writing them. He had actually not gone to Colossae. It was, it was um, started by different mission works. So he's writing to address the fall teachers who were claiming to have heavenly experiences and visions. O'Brien, who's a commentator, said such people apparently claimed that they were directed by the mind. Yes, says Paul, a mind of flesh. If they boasted they were acquainted, excuse me, if they boasted they were acquainted with divine fullness, then all they were full of was their own pride. Worst of all, the self-inflation and arrogance in these private religious experiences Experiences came not from maintaining contact with Christ the head. No doubt, those who sought to make inroads into the community presupposed that they were Christians, but they faced the most serious of condemnations. They were severed from the very one who is the source of life and unity. Paul in Colossians is redirecting their thoughts to the simple truths of the gospel that were for all, not just the intellectually elite, and points to the supremacy of Christ over all creation, including angels. He is the only mediator between God and man. Flipping a couple pages over to Colossians 1, just to kind of... We're just going to taste what Paul was laying out before we get to three because he's laying out this foundation, the doctrinal foundation. Martha's been talking to us about doctrine and how that needs to inform our life. So here he is. Look down at verse 13. Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Skip down to verse 21. Paul tells Colossae, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So here Paul is laying that foundation of no, 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 no. It's not things you have done. It's not these heavenly visions or this intellectual. It is Christ who has done it 
for you. God is the one who rescues you from the domain of darkness and transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Look again in Colossians 2. So flip a page if needed. And we're going to start at verse 13. Colossians 2, 13. He lays it out again. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Hallelujah. So here Paul is reminding them once again, this is not what you did plus Christ equals salvation. This is God through Christ has accomplished it all. You need nothing else. So they were struggling with uh, man's traditions. You have to do this and that and the other thing. And yeah, 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 you need Christ. Christ is the Messiah, but you need these other things as well. So Paul is trying to redirect their thinking, redirect their focus of no, it is all of Christ and none of us. So he starts out verse 1. So back to Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, and again, it's that sense you have been raised with Christ, uh, a commentator said, this is the sort of change which follows from complete identification with another person or cause. When the service of that person or that cause becomes all-consuming, the basic determiner of all priorities, the bubbling spring of a motivation, a resolution, an application, which perseveres despite even repeated setbacks. So ladies, the first question we have to ask ourselves, have you been raised up with Christ? Is this a reality for you? Has God rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son? Do you love the God that you once hated and hate the sin now you once loved? Have you been made alive together with him, having your sin forgiven and your debt nailed to the cross? Has that great exchange happened for you that you, Christ took your sin, paid the penalty on the cross, and in its stead gave you his complete righteousness. You are covered by his righteousness. So now that when the father looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees his son's righteousness in its stead. Is this a reality for you? <clears throat> Has God so taken that sin and you have an assurity of, yes, I am not what I want to be, but I'm not what I once was? Praise God, it's none of me. I have no goodness of my own. Only Christ. Only Christ. 
Ladies, this is my longing for you, that you would know none but Christ. This is my longing for myself, and I fail at it miserably sometimes. And yet, trusting Christ solely, stripping away our own self-righteousness, stripping away what am I trusting, what am I, like we talked a couple weeks ago, what am I leaning on my own understanding, what kind of own understanding am I leaning on? Or am I simply clinging to Christ? So as a result, Paul goes on here, as a result of our past with Christ, since we are raised up with him, that reality leads us to A, the command to seek. The command to seek. Since these things are true for us, he says, keep seeking the things above. And that keep seeking, that present tense of this verse indicates a continuous action. You started at redemption and you will do it continuously throughout your Christian walk. You are to keep seeking continually, continually. And that word seek should ping in your mind of another verse that talks about seeking, Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we are to be seeking Christ first in all. So the verse goes on. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Paul is keeping that emphasis on Christ, pointing to his resurrection and subsequent ascension back into heaven. John Newton says, They are the happiest Christians who have the lowest thoughts of themselves and in whose eyes Jesus is the most glorious and precious. So Paul keeps on pointing back to Christ. And yet he's kind of pulling a little bit of their thought patterns of, you know, the the false teachers keep on talking about these heavenly visions. So Paul is redirecting their focus of this is not about your experience. This is about keeping your eyes, your focus on Christ, who is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And that seated at the right hand of God, he's pointing back to a fulfillment of the Psalms that Christ fulfills. Psalm 110.1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here Paul is just pointing back and alluding to that of Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the one that God has given to us as the Savior, and he will complete it. He is sitting on the throne. He is ruling over all, and one day God will make his enemies a footstool for Christ. So because of the reality of our being raised up in Christ, we have the command to seek as well as the command to set So B, on your outlines, the command to set. Look back down to verse number two. It says, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. So the verb set your mind is actually a favorite of Paul. So 23 times of the 26 times it appears in the New Testament, it's Paul's the one saying it. 
So it means to think, to form an opinion, or to have an attitude, or to be intent on. So here, for the sake of emphasis, Paul takes the seeking and repeats it again in a different way in verse 2. So the exhortation is, in in effect, repeated again in the present tense to denote a sustained effort or perspective. So it is a continual setting your mind on the things above. Now, ladies, like we said before, this is not some sort of mystical vision that only truly spiritual people can attain. It is a practical setting our attention that our thoughts are constantly on our Savior, and those thoughts, in turn, affect our decisions, our feelings, and our actions. Paul Enns, who is an ACBC fellow and a pastor, said, what we think is important. I don't mean that our opinions about various topics are important. They may or may not be important, but I mean the content of our thoughts. What we are thinking about in any given moment is important. The millions of thoughts that travel around our six-inch diameter gray matter every day do matter. Those thoughts form our desires, and they inform our decisions and guide our actions. It may be true that you are what you eat physically, but it's even more true that we are what we think. How we live is the product of how we think. Our actions are the result of our thoughts. What we think is important. Do you hear what he's saying there? Oftentimes, we just kind of react to everything in our day. We just let our minds kind of ebb and flow wherever we want. Oftentimes, our our thoughts can be like a raging river, can it not? Just flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing and flowing. And you feel like you're just like barely on the top of the raging river holding on for dear life. Am I right? It feels as though you have no control over those thoughts. And the longer you let that river rage, the deeper embedded it goes. And the more natural it feels for your thoughts to go down that raging river. But yet, we need to think, are we able to control those thoughts? Are we able to put that Put a log across, put that dam across where we don't allow those natural fleshly thoughts that we've had a habit since we were wee itty bitty go in a certain path and we need to dig out a new path. Christ has given us a new path for our thoughts to flow. We are not slaves to the raging river. We can cause our thoughts to flow in the new path that Christ has given us at the moment of redemption. But what are we doing with our thoughts? In his book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind, David Saxton says, Perhaps the best advice I could offer someone who desires to become a stable, godly person of meditation is this. Turn off the television and fight the temptation to be an entertainment-dominated person. 
The wholesale surrender of the mind to the world programs and amusements led R. Kent Hughes to bemoan, this cosmic potential of the believer's mind introduces the greatest scandal of today's church. Christians without Christian minds. Christians who do not think Christianly. So Augustine said, no one longs for eternal, incorruptible, and immortal life unless he be wearied of this temporal, corruptible, and mortal life. So as we are considering our thought patterns, where do my thoughts automatically go? Do I go back to my old self? Do I let them just run rampant? Or am I dragging them to the new path that God has given me towards Christ? Paul ends again, says, to align our thoughts with things above, we must also not set our minds on things that are on the earth. He is not saying the physical world around us is unimportant. Paul is not a Gnostic saying all physical things are bad, but he is rejecting the priority of the world. He is rejecting the morality of the world. He is saying we need to stop acting as if heaven is temporary and earth is eternal. And isn't that true, ladies? It is so easy because this is what we know. We know ourselves. We know our minds. We've been listening to ourselves yakety yak since we were teeny tiny. So it's normal. This life is normal. So we can't imagine anything else outside of what we do. We get up. We get dressed. We brush our teeth. We do our things today. We go to bed. We get up the next day, repeat, 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 right? And yet, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us a vision of something entirely different to set our minds on. That yes, do we need to get up? Yes, do we need to get dressed? Yes, do we need to brush our teeth? But this dovetails so nicely with what Chris has been talking about. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that seeps down to the heart level, the thought level. Where are my thoughts as I'm brushing our teeth? Martha Peace talked about it. You know, it used to be we had to really concentrate at it. And us as moms a lot of times have to stand right there, especially with boys for whatever reason. They're kind of not detail-oriented, so you have to stand right there and be like, ah, 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 left back. You didn't get your left back one. Scrub away. Nope, you're not done. No, you don't get to spit the whole thing of toothpaste and be like, I'm done in two seconds. Not good enough. So just like that, we don't have to think those things. We can brush our teeth and be putting on our shoes and be thinking about our grocery list all at the same time without too terrible much effort on our own behalf, right? Automatic, habitual thinking. So we need to um, train our minds to think on the things above. So if what we think is important, you might ask, then how am I supposed to set my mind on the things above? I'm so glad you asked. 2 Corinthians 10.5, I think, is a very useful key when we are thinking about, okay, Rach, you said set my mind. You said that's a continuous action. I want to do that. What do I do? 
So 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now notice what is to be destroyed in that verse. Speculations, which speculations often means reasonings, our own reasonings. And every lofty thing, that word can also be translated barrier. So every lofty thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God, that is what we are to go after. Reasonings that go against the knowledge of God, barriers that go up against the knowledge of God. And that word captive, taking every thought captive, that word captive is a very violent term. It's, it's used just like in our army capturing the enemy, tying them up, and forcibly bringing them to their king. So just like that, we are to take our thoughts captive, tie them up, redirect them, bring them before our king. So second, oh, we'll get there in a second. So you might say, well, I've heard objections or challenges, not that I say them, but I've heard other people say them. Some objections or challenges to keeping every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And those thoughts that just ruin our focus of setting our minds on things above. Maybe you encounter people that, that say, Ugh, I'm just so tired. How am I supposed to think through and keep captive every single thought that pops in my head? I'm wore out just thinking about it. It is true. It is wearying. But we are in a battle. We are soldiers of our king. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 might be a word of encouragement to those people you might encounter that says they're tired. It says, he, Christ, has said to me, that's Paul speaking there, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. There's a motivation. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it is the Holy Spirit and power in us that will help us to conquer these things. That doesn't mean we're going to feel like superwomen and just have easy breezy, easy peasy lemon squeezy, if you will. It's not going to be that way. We will have enough strength to survive. But... All glory goes to Christ because we say, I know my natural bent. I know I was tired. And yet, Christ sustained me. So he gets all the glory. That definitely was not me there. I actually was able to capture that thought. And I used to always think this way. But now I'm thinking this way because I love Christ. I want Christ to be pleased even at a thought level. Like some of us that have some crinkles, we've gotten better at, you know, hiding on the outside. And yet we let the thoughts on the inside rage. And yet that will seep out eventually. 
We're better at it than kids are, huh? But yet, if we don't get control of what's on the inside, it will seep out into our desires, into our actions, into our behaviors, and then into our character. So it needs to be captured on the inside, and we don't get the excuse of I'm too tired because Christ is able. Or maybe you'll, you'll encounter people that say, well, I mean, Rach, I want to, but I, I just I don't feel very close to God. You'll hear that one a lot. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or we also have James 4.8 that says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So ladies, it's very important that we think about this correctly. Being close to God is not primarily a feeling that we feel. If you notice, both those verses command us to draw near to God. It doesn't command us to feel close to God. And that might be very helpful for you. If that is a discouraging thought for you, I just don't feel very close to God. That draw near means to turn one's thoughts to God to become acquainted with him. The phrase was often used in the Old Testament when the priest would draw near to offer sacrifices to the living God. So we don't need those sacrifices because we have a great high priest who is sympathetic towards us. He is also high priest and sacrifice, all in one, supreme for all time. So we we can draw near to God with confidence, as 4.16 says, to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we are to draw near to him and trust his word that he will draw near to us. Now, this does not mean that our feelings will not be involved, but it does give us comfort that feeling a certain way is not necessary to drawing near to God. So there's great joy and great comfort in that. Remember what John said, John Newton said at the beginning in his letter. He said, if obedience is the thing in question, Looking unto Jesus is the object that melts the soul into love and gratitude. And those who greatly love and are greatly obliged find obedience easy. So here's an example of, yes, that ignites the emotions and the passions. But it's that getting acquainted with God, getting to know him as he is, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that acknowledging him in all your ways, and he will make your path straight. Maybe another one is assumptions, those challenges to keeping your mind set above. Have you ever talked to somebody who jumps to quick conclusions and assumptions, or maybe yourself even, of you think you know, you know, what that person was doing. Oh, I know why he did that. Oh, I know why she said that. So we have to stop 
making assumptions. Only God knows the motives of the heart. So some examples of this as we're thinking this through. For instance, your husband didn't call when he said he would. You assume he must be upset with you, so you avoid him when he comes home. He assumes you are a cold-hearted wife. Or maybe a friend attends several events without inviting you along. You assume that obviously others are more important to her than you are, so you don't reach out anymore. She doesn't hear from you and assumes you are just moody, right? Lots of assumptions going, flying back and forth. Or let's say you are fearful or confused in a certain situation, so you get really, really quiet. The group you are with assumes you're just willfully pouting for attention. Can we read the motives in the minds of others? No, not without them revealing our hearts to us. So oftenly, that's a fleshly and earthly, oh, I know why that's happening. No, no, you don't. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both Excuse me, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Also, as we're thinking those through, let's take, for instance, the your husband didn't call when he said he would. You, you assume, oh, he's upset. Or even you might even assume you don't go to that level. You don't think he's upset. You just say, I'm not that important to him. If I was important, he would have called when he said he was going to call. I see how it is. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say? How are we supposed to respond to things? And again, look at this. This is an expectation. You have an expectation of him calling you. You might say, but wait a minute, Rach. You said he said he was going to call. I'm just naturally thinking he's going to do what he said he was going to do. Still an expectation. And yet when that expectation does not get fulfilled, what happens in our own hearts? Our thoughts start thinking things. Our feelers start feeling things. And we draw out to a conclusion that's totally incorrect. Instead, instead of letting your mind, raging river, go a certain way, we block it. And we yank it towards Christ. How does Christ want me to respond? Well, I know that 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So if I believe all things, then I'm going to believe my husband's probably busy. So I am going to pray for him because I know he's at work. I'm going to pray that God protects him, that gives him success at his job that I'm going to believe that he has good intentions. And you know what? I'm not going to let myself jump to conclusions. I'm going to wait and hear the truth of what happened before I assume. And if he did forget, then I'm going to endure that well and forgive him because he's forgiven me of lots of stuff too. There's been times I've forgiven Do you see the difference of like using scripture, everyday life, get them together. Your focus is towards Christ, 
constantly not towards self. So assumptions, they can be deadly, deadly things. Maybe you or a friend will say, well, I just, I can't help what I'm thinking. The thoughts just come into my head. And then it starts spiraling out of control and my emotions run rampant. Paul Enns says, when we struggle with fear, anxiety, loneliness, depression, anger, worry, and a host of other internal sins, it is because, at least in part, we are focusing more on what is earthly and less on what is heavenly. We are thinking more about what we are losing on earth than what we will gain in glory. We may be feeding ourselves scripture, but as much as these sins overwhelm us, we aren't allowing the scripture to shape our thinking, our desires, and our actions. So Romans 12.2 is a natural um, weapon to use in these moments. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So ladies, as we have these thoughts come into our heads, we need to be capturing them. We need to be intentional. Again, that set your mind. It's very intent. You're supposed to be intentional about this. Do not allow yourself the habit of that wrong pattern of thoughts. Don't let it go towards the flesh, which often ends where? Self. Well, I'm just trying to protect myself. Well, I just want this, and it's a good thing. Why can't I have it? Always our trajectory should be towards Christ, who is in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So our past reality of being raised up with Christ as we are seeking and setting our minds on things above will bring us to number two on your outlines. Our present with Christ. We are hidden. Our present. So we have our past. Now we have our present with Christ. We are hidden. Look down at verse three. For you have Died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have thus died to sin, says John MacArthur, in the sense of paying its penalty. Its presence and its power still affect us, but it cannot condemn us. Praise God. We are not under its condemnation any longer. We don't have to be a slave to our own heads. We do not have to be a slave to our own fleshly desires and thoughts that rage. We can capture them and yank them into the obedience of Christ. Romans 6 has a a beautiful passage that helps us think this through of you have died. Romans 6, 5 says, actually, let's go ahead and turn there together. Go ahead and go to Romans 6. We're going to read down to verse 9 and then skip to 11. But Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 5. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. John Newton said, I renounce all wisdom, all righteousness, holiness, and happiness, which does not spring from and center in Christ. So ladies, part of the old life in which we are dead are the forms of religion and thinking that we can achieve godly experiences through ways we come up with ourselves, through man's traditions and visions or experiences. A lot of times we just, we just want to have a little piece of the pie. We just want to say, well, I mean, there was my own intelligence that, of course, I would choose Christ because who wouldn't want to go to heaven? No, it is all of Christ. Or we say, hey, if I do all my Christianly checkboxes, then I'm good to go. And we don't think about our own thoughts we don't think how those thoughts affects our desires, our actions, and we get puffed up and proud over the fact that we are accomplishing all these things. And we do not give glory to the Lord for our accomplishments, but yet subtly kind of pat ourselves on the back. And that is vile wickedness, that's fleshliness. We're not doing it for the proper motivations. But this new life is found in Christ. We are joined with him in that life just as he was raised from the dead, we are raised in the newness of life. Now, this new life is concealed from the world. Can we go around and check everybody behind the right ear to see if there's an E stamp there? Oh, you're elect, you're elect. Ooh. No. And the unbelievers are incapable to be able to see it because it's spiritually looked at. So we are hidden in Christ. Actually, we're hidden with Christ in God. What security is there? What joy, what safety is there? We are hidden with Christ. Now, what is he talking about? Ladies, can we see Christ right now? No, we know the truth that he is in heaven seated at the right hand of the father but we can't see him he is hidden from our view now but will he stay out of sight forever no one day the reality is he is coming again so Paul is kind of using that comparison of hidden and then in a minute we're going to see revealed So for now, he's hidden until he comes again. Just like we cannot see him but know the reality of his being seated at the right hand of the Father, we know the reality that we are with him in God right now. So we are to be so wrapped up and obsessed with this 
view of Christ in God, that Christ's life is our life, the one and the same. Look down, back down at verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, we are so joined and so united with Christ that his very life is our life. We are covered in his righteousness. That should warm your soul and bleed out love and gratitude for all that he has done for us. Now, being hidden in Christ even has elements of our new life in the future being hidden even from ourselves. We can't even conceive of all the different elements of our glorified bodies in the revealing of Christ. Am I right? How often do we long, oh, sinful woman that I am, can I just be rid of this fleshly mortal coil and have my glorified body so I can actually worship well like Yvonne talked about last week, to have all right doctrine, to have it all right in my head and know the truth of who God is because I will see him face to face and I will spend all of eternity praising him for his character, for his works, for all who he is. Oh, that longing we should have. And yet, it's that tension between the already, but not quite yet. We are, have been already raised with Christ. We are with him in God. And yet, we're not yet glorified. So we have our past having been raised up with Christ and our present of being hidden with Christ in God. And now we see number three. Our future with Christ. We will be revealed. Our future with Christ. We will be revealed. Look down at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So as the, one of the commentators said, as the glory of Christ now is hid from the world, so also the glory of the believer's inner life proceeding from communion with him is still hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, the source of this life, shall manifest himself in glory, then their hidden glory will be made manifest and correspond in appearance to its original. So Paul presents our future revelation as fact. So what O'Brien said, he is arguing against those who are interested in the heavenly realm, but who had false notions about it, believing that it could be reached by legalistic observances or knowledge or visionary experiences and the like. Ultimately, the doctrine of grace was at stake. The readers of Colossians, therefore, needed to be instructed that they had died with Christ, had been raised with him, and had been given new life with him. He had done all that was necessary. So they were zealously to pursue the things of that new order centered on the exalted Christ. So ladies, as we are viewing our everyday lives, 
as we are thinking these things through, as we're building, going through this book, our thoughts, our attitudes, are we allowing scripture to press and mold us into the image of Christ? Or are we filling our days with viewing what the world has to offer and then glancing at scripture and seeing if our own reasoning, you know, does that make sense to me? Okay, if it does, then I'll pick it up and run with it. But if it doesn't, I don't know about that. Who are we listening to more? Who are we allowing to have more time in our day to influence us with our minds? Are we allowing the world around us, social media? Social media even is... I think a little bit more tricky and crafty in the way it is because you don't feel as though you're spending a lot of time because it's little snippets and you're constantly moving to other little snippets. Like you can say, oh, okay, I, I watched, you know, I binge watched that show for a really long time. So that's a little easier to be like, woo, I spent that chunk of time. But a lot of times, what do we do when we have a couple minutes? We flick through, read it. But it doesn't feel as though we spent a long time because we did, you know, three minutes here, four minutes there, ten minutes there. It's not one chunk of time. So it's a lot more deceitful. Instead, would it not be better? And I'm not downing so I know good things happen in social media. People are encouraged. Great things are posted. My husband even was very encouraged by H.B. Charles, who did something on hymns, and he definitely reposted that one, of the glory of hymns and how encouraging they are in our Christian lives. So, and bring back the hymns, I think, was one of the big poster things he showed me this morning. So, of course, Ron was all about that. But, so there are good things in social media, but how better even more to center our minds on scripture, to take those three and four minute pockets that we have here and there, to have scripture verses. I love pretty scripture verses. A lot of times if I'm trying to encourage somebody with a scripture verse, not only will I look, look up which passage that I think would be encouraging in the moment, but I'll try to go find it on a pretty picture and send that, because I love it. It's the beauty of his word, so it's gorgeous. It's lovely in and of itself, but it's always nice to have some of God's beautiful creation behind the beauty of scripture as well, so we can glory in both at the same time. So how often do you pull that up on your phone to be able to focus on it, to focus your mind on Christ? How often do you take those three, four-minute pockets up, or 30 seconds sometimes, to be able to pray, to be able to even say, I am literally going to take this time to practice training my mind to think thoughts about Christ. Now, sometimes we might start, and about 30 seconds to 45 seconds in, we might be going... Okay, I thought of everything that I could think of. Now what? If that's the case, you pull out your phone, because most of you probably have a Bible app on there. Pull up the Psalms, start reading through the Psalms and praising the Lord for it. Or pull up Colossians, pull up Ephesians. Ephesians 1 is beautiful. 
count how many times Paul says, in him. Beautiful. Start praising the Lord by praying through the scriptures. If your memory banks are not full enough to get beyond 30 seconds to 45 seconds of just thoughts about Christ, just fill it up more. And you do that by layer, by layer, by layer. Don't get defeated at the first. You're allowed to cheat and look it up. That's why we have stuff like our Bibles on our phones, so that we can do that if we're waiting in the store or if we're sitting in the doctor's office or if we're at home. What is your first thing you do when you actually miraculously get to sit down for two seconds? Is it pull out the phone and be entertained? Or is it, you know what, I'm going to train my mind to think thoughts about Christ and dig out where that flow pattern, where I want it to go in my mind. So just some things to think through. Our friend John Newton again said, my hope is built not upon frames and feelings, but upon the atonement and mediation of Jesus so the, the words in glory there in Colossians 3, 4 says, our glory is to be shown to be like Christ in our glorification. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Charles Spurgeon had an interesting way that he kind of pulled all those thoughts together. He said, Christ is all, not in my justification only, but in my sanctification too. He is all, not only in the first steps of my faith, but in the last. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. There is no point between the gates of hell and the gates of heaven where a believer shall have to say, Christ fails me here, and I must rely upon my own endeavors. From the dunghill of our corruption... Up to the throne of our perfection, there is no point left to hazard or set aside for us to supply. Our salvation has Christ to begin with, Christ to go on with, and Christ to finish with. And that in all points, at all times, for every man of woman born that ever shall be saved. There is no point in which the creature comes to claim merit, or to bring strength, or to make up for that which was lacking. Christ is all and in all. The saints are perfect in Christ Jesus. He said it is finished, and finished it is. He is not the author of our faith only, but the finisher of it too. He is all in all, and man is nothing at all all. So ladies, as we are training our minds to go straight for our Lord, it is so vital that we keep that in our thoughts. Christ is all. I am nothing at all. 
that humility, we're going to talk about humility next week, that humility is so needed to be able to conquer our own thoughts, to be able to run to Christ, that draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. If we are going to conquer our thoughts, Christ needs to be our all in all. John Newton very succinctly said, I am vile indeed, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. He leads and guides me. He feeds and guards me. He restores and heals me. He is an all-sufficient Savior. Under the care of such an all-sufficient Christ, the chief of sinners does not despair, but presses on towards holiness. So ladies, as we think of our thoughts, and am I allowing that raging river of thoughts, or am I shutting off the flow and redirecting it to the obedience of Christ? Remember that. The chief of sinners does not have to despair, but we need to keep pressing on towards holiness. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that Christ is all in all. We thank you that it is not on our shoulders, and yet you graciously have paid the price for our sin that you in its stead have given us your righteousness. We thank you, Christ, that we are hidden with you in God, that you are our surety, that you are our guider, our helper, our protector. Lord, might you even in our own hearts, our own thoughts, help us to be very intentional in the patterns of our thoughts that we would stop up the dam when our thoughts start going into earthly, fleshly veins and that we would redirect it into the refreshing river flowing towards you. Lord, we cannot do it on our own, only empowered by the Holy Spirit that you have provided for us. We thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we ask all things. Amen.